Hello and welcome to the Mindful Coach Podcast. And I'm your host, Brett Hill. I'm a mindful somatic coach and founder of the Mindful Coach Association. I meet a lot of coaches working with the Mindful Coach Association. I'm so inspired by their stories and the courageous work that they're doing that I created this podcast so you can hear them too. If you're aligned with this work, then join us at themindfulcoachassociation.com where you can list your services for absolutely free and receive invitations to community meetings where you can network and meet your colleagues. We hope you'll join us. And now, The Mindful Coach Podcast. So welcome to this edition of The Mindful Coach Podcast. And with me today is none other than Melody Murray, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist and child mental health specialist in private practice, serving clients 14 to 75, managing ADHD, trauma, depression, boundary, and family of origin issues, as well as adults with childhood trauma. She is really an accomplished professional having an She's the author of the Mourn, of Mourning the Living When the Loved Ones You've Lost Is Still Here. Whoa. I, when I heard that title, I like had to take a beat and take that in because that's a big one. And she's working on a new book called My Bounce Back Plan, uh, available next year, which uh, she's working on between takes here. <laughs> For, <laughs> formal hospital. Literally between takes. A formal hospital ER mental health evaluator assessing homicidal and suicidal patients. And I'm telling you, you know, tip of the hat to that one because that doesn't get any deeper, harder, more real than that. She's been interviewed by the Today Show, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Business Insider, um, the Doctors E Network, and Peace of Mind with Tariji on Facebook Watch, HBO's Pause with Sam J, and as if that wasn't enough, she has a background in producing TV and directing on several shows, including MTV's The Real World. Who hasn't heard of that? Next, The Bad Girls Club and Janice Dickinson's Modeling Agency. And more, because there's an et cetera at the end of that. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. How come you're not... I mean, you, you should be my age to have all that packed in. I'm so, you've been a busy, you've been a really busy woman. I've been strategic. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I've been strategic. That's right. I love that very much. I really wanted to have you on the show because, uh, when we talked, you were so, um, you know, you're so powerful in the way you present and ground it. And I love the fact that you're focused on uh, boundaries a lot. And that's something I'd like to talk about, particularly uh, to coaches and to the coaching professionals and helping professionals out there who the podcast is aimed at <clears throat> helping ourselves as coaches declare boundaries between getting involved with all Because a lot of times I talk to, for example, physicians, licensed social workers like yourself, who wind up getting in a state of being burned out. Um, what do you know about that? And, and what, what kind of thing, what might you say to people in that situation? You know, I believe that there are, there are many factors that drive us to being helping professionals, to being healers. And, and part of that is, you know, well, one reason is, is that sometimes we grow up in really, really tough circumstances and then we heal. 
And mm. then we realize I want other people to feel good too. I want other, I want to help other people heal. And so sometimes we can blur the lines between doing our job and then really wanting to like grab people and take them along with us and, and be along for the ride. And, and because we know how good it feels to feel better. And, mm. and sometimes we will go overboard with that, but it's, it's necessary for us to have boundaries because when, especially when we're trying to teach our clients to have boundaries, we need to lead by example. Right. And so what is it that causes people then to be able to do that? Like, you know, because there's a, you know, there's this push between I want to be helpful versus what can I actually do? And, and somehow people get overdriven. And what, I mean, how would you help? What would you say to, to, you know, the professionals out there to help them learn to dial that balance in? Well, I think this is where it, it really requires us to be present with ourselves. Like we really need to build our self-awareness and notice how you feel. Like really, really, really hone into how you physically feel when someone asks you to do something. Do you feel elated? Do you feel excited, enthusiastic? Or do you feel ugh, exhausted? depleted does it feel <laughs> uncomfortable for you to make a, to, to respond to their request that's mm. our intuition i feel that's our intuition telling leaning us you know one direction or another you know what you know what decision do you need to make listen to your body your body is telling you what you need to do but sometimes we fight that and we fight off what our body into what is the emotion? What is the sensation that we feel in any particular moment and let that guide our decision making? Well, I, of course, I'm 100% behind that. It's like, um, and, and I would add just to, as if I was doing the next paragraph, it's like, and our culture doesn't help us learn that. And on us being, it's, it's not built for our well-being. Our culture mm -hmm. is so not meant for us to be content and satisfied and relaxed and calm. Um, I'm currently reading a book by my one of my personal gurus, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, and mm -hmm. he's released his re his he's just released his most recent book, and it's called The Myth of Normal, and it talks about how our society is bent. Uh, towards us being insecure and anxious and depressed and sad because we are better consumers when we're in these precarious states. You know, we're better consumers when we're really upset and sad and insecure because then we buy things to help ourselves feel better. We're jumping over what it is that we're feeling and we're, you know, putting band-aids on those feelings when we need to just feel. And I think that whenever it comes to us creating boundaries with our clients, you know, we have to lead by example. We have to say, hey, I can't take you on. I can't do an extra session. I don't work on Saturdays because mm -hmm. that's my time to relax. And knowing when we set those boundaries, it teaches them how to set boundaries. Like we are in a really unique position that can feel uncomfortable on in the beginning or in the front of the situation it can feel uncomfortable for us to establish boundaries but really understanding that that's exactly what our clients are asking us to do they're learning from us so we can lead them by by doing the very things that we want them to do for themselves and that burnout piece is huge and i remember having a moment um at the hospital and i was i was separated i was going through a divorce and i was raised to just 
just soldier on. You keep just it going. Press on. Was, yep. You press on. And I was exhausted. And one of them, honey, you don't look so good. And mm. and my knee-jerk response was like, what are you talking about? I look yeah, fantastic. Right. What you, I look great. I'm, <laughs> I'm fabulous. What are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? And so I allowed myself to have that knee-jerk response internally. Mm. I didn't say it out loud, but I, I had that uh. moment, that quick moment. And then I, and then I, I let her words penetrate because mm. then I knew this is my friend. She cares about me. She's yeah. not coming at me in a way to harm me. So my knee jerk response to be was to be defensive. And then I paused and I read the situation, which was, this is one of my closest friends. She knows me. And so then I gave myself permission to let her words penetrate. And then once I did that, my body just exhaled in a way that I allowed myself to go, wait a minute. She's right. I am exhausted. Mm -hmm. I feel like crap. I feel like crap. And I left. And then lo and behold, it happened months later. I had a different coworker. I was still in the emergency room. I was working a shift and I had a different coworker go, Mel, are you okay? Hmm. I said, what are you talking about, Colin? I'm just fine. He's like, of course I'm fine. You Why are you asking? He's like, you look <laughs> exhausted. And I was like, I'm okay. And he's like, why don't you go home? And I'm like, this is my shift. I run this shift. This is my shift. And he was like, we got it covered. There's, it's, it's pretty quiet. We got it covered. Hmm. And then I'm like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Because I've been built to be fine. I've been built right. to you need to, you need to show up and make sure you're there. And yeah, I totally hear that in a lot of levels. Yeah. And so, but he, he went over my head. He went to our supervisor who came to me and she goes, no, oh, wow. go home. Yeah. No, we got it covered. You're fine. Just go home. And, and I just kind of collapsed into that and realized that these are my friends. They're reading me better than I'm reading myself. Mm-hmm. And I've had to work on that. And I have been actively mm-hmm. working on that, reading myself and then making decisions based on what I'm reading and taking my ego out of the equation. And our mm-hmm. ego drives so many things unnecessarily, but it's a defense mechanism. I had to realize as I was growing up, there were a lot of ridiculous things that were happening around me. And because those people, the adults in the room, didn't have their shit together. And so I had to make up for that. And I had to act like everything was fine because they acted like everything was fine. And Mm -hmm. I, what I was truly feeling didn't matter. And so I realized that I had taken that on from childhood decades past my chaotic environment, but I took that on as this is a part of my personality. I'm a soldier and that doesn't serve me. It doesn't Mm. serve me at all. And so I had to check myself and stop doing Mm. that. And I'm still working on it, but we have to set those boundaries. And sometimes we, you know, the boundaries start with our interactions with other people. And that's what I think most people consider when they think about boundaries, think of, think about boundaries as we are in relationship with other people, but our most important relationship is with ourselves. And so Mm. we need to set those boundaries with ourselves so that we're not putting ourselves out there too much too often in order to serve other people. Mm-hmm. We have to take care of ourselves and draw the lines when necessary and knowing that it's not going to damage a relationship that's a, that, that has a true and sincere collect, 
we're not going to damage a relationship that has a, a true sincere connection by, you know, asserting ourselves and taking care of ourselves. Yeah, I love that very much because it's like you were saying, your friend, this is your friend, right? Mm -hmm. And in the first example, and she's like, I need to listen to her. And I really like the way you placed that because you kind of, you described uh, very clearly, you know, a mindful moment like where, oh, I'm noticing that I am being really reactive and I want to just go, no, that's not, I, I'm okay. What are you talking about? But then you, you literally said, I pressed pause and considered. And so that's the, you know, take a breath. So that's the, you know, neurologically, that's the executive function coming online going, oh, hold on. I'm not going to be reactive. I'm going to make another choice. A better choice. And, uh, that's a very powerful example of, a of, uh, you know, the whole process of and, and the value of, of, ha of having mindfulness as a resource in those moments. It's like really, really great example. How did, how did you get started on? I mean, I don't know your career, you know, from a personal story, but it sounds like you did, you know, entertainment and then maybe, and, and somehow entertainment, cause that's a big job, all those things in <laughs> entertainment. And then yeah. also you got licensed as a, you know, um, in your, in your clinical work. So, which came first there? How did, and then uh, what, how did that all come about? Yeah. Um, and I realized as you were saying what you said earlier, you don't realize how old I am. I'm much older than I look. I'm 50 years old. So I've had the time to kind of figure, to pack all these things in. Um, I hosted a children's show for a very long time and I was an actress for a while and then I thought I want power and I want to understand the inner workings of television so I switched to behind the scenes and worked oh, my way that. up to producing and directing and I left Houston which is my hometown I left Houston moved to Los Angeles and worked my way up I loved producing and directing I was traveling all over the place on other people's dimes which is the best way to travel <laughs> And, and was having a ball, you know, mostly doing reality TV shows. I did some game shows. I did some competition shows. But I had two shows back to back that were really, really challenging. And one of them was there was a lot of unethical things going on. And that's not a word that you use in reality TV. That's a word that I've assigned <laughs> I'm kidding. To you talk about I the myth of normal. That's, that's really living the myth of normal there, that's isn't it? <laughs> It's supposed to be unethical. It's reality TV. Right, I know. This, this is ethics for ethics for entertainment, right? Yeah, there's a whole <laughs> different category for reality TV. And I, but I just, I started reading myself and realizing that, you know, where I was having a lot of fun for a really long time, it stopped being fun. So where it started, where, you know, was show after show after show was fantastic. And then it was like, there'd be, a, you know, three or four amazing shows and then one dud. Three or four, then one dud. And then it was like they were all duds and one amazing show. It flipped. Mm. It stopped being fun. And I think that, you know, I was in my own therapy at the time and I was really reading myself at the time and realizing how much our time on this earth is limited and how I wanted mm. my time to really mean something meaningful and I wanted to be a part of people's healing and growth and not be a part of throwing a camera on people's crisis moments. 
Mm -hmm. Throwing the camera on people's dysfunctional moments. It just didn't serve me. It didn't work. Mm -hmm. It didn't work for my heart and my soul. And so I did these two projects back to back where one was really, really unethical and ridiculous. And the other, it was a bunch of young people. It was, I think it was my very first season of directing the real world. And, you know, these are all young people. They're all in their early 20s. And they're doing things that people do in their early 20s. Right. Exploring and taking chances. And who am I? And how do I find out? And They're dating and they're partying and they're having relationships. And, you know, they're doing things that they don't understand the ripple effect of their decisions. And as a director, it's not my job to intervene. My job is to put the camera on the scene and get the best angle. And (laughs) that just didn't work for me anymore where I'm watching (laughs) them do certain things and I'm like, do you really want to take that shot? Do you really want to go on a date with that person? You really, you know, yeah. And so I had this existential crisis and I reached out to my therapist. I was in Vegas at the time. I'd gone from Savannah, Georgia to Las Vegas and I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And I said, I have to see you as soon as I get back to LA. We need to talk. And I said to him, I said, I I need to change my career and I have an idea of what I want it to be. And he said, what? And I said, I think I want to go back to school and become a therapist. And you're my therapist, and you're supposed to tell me if I'm too crazy for that, right? <laughs> and well, I'm he guessing said, that went well. I'm guessing that conversation went well. It went well. It did. It went well. And he said, I will write whatever recommendation letters you need. I think you'd be brilliant at it. That's Which was such an amazing endorsement because this man, he's been doing it for 40 years. And and most of his clients are, are entertainment people, you know, network, directors, what have you. And I, and, and I delayed it for a while because I was going to miss out on a lot of money. And I was, I loved the money. I had to be honest. (laughs) They got to pay. And so, but then I, 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 my nephew is a Navy vet and he'd gone to Afghanistan and he called me on his 21st birthday, having a panic Mm. attack. And what I did for him I did not know was de-escalation. I de-escalated him during a panic attack on his 21st birthday. And that's what did it for me. That's, that's when the switch flipped. And I said, I can't delay this anymore. I'm going to school. So I went back to school. I got my master's in clinical psychology and I've been doing therapy ever since. And now my career has transitioned into writing. You know, I, Mourning the Living was my first book. I released that in September. And then my next book is coming out in January, 2024. And, and people get so impressed by that. I'm like, no, I've got ADHD. I started this book a long time ago. <laughs> in April, they're like, wow, that's so amazing. I'm like, ADHD. I started it a long time ago and right. got distracted. <laughs> right. I, you know, I started multiple things and now I'm, I have learned the tools to, to complete certain things. And, and that's what I've been really leaning into my authenticity. I've been leaning into really discovering myself so that I could be my most authentic self. And that means that I do disclose and I'm Thank here you. to help people <laughs> heal. I'm here to help people grow and accept themselves. And a way that I help people do that is by disclosing certain things that I feel can be helpful to them mm. to hear that. Yeah, I am helping you because I've 
trained in a lot of different fields and I'm teaching you interventions that I've learned, but I'm learning too. I'm still figuring things out about myself as I'm on this journey to, you know, help you. So that's mm. how I made that tra transition. And now it's like, it's coming together with this, my love of television is also coinciding with my love of mental health and psychology. And so now I've been guesting on different TV shows, talking to people, helping them learn how to help themselves. Mm, beautiful. So, okay, I have a kind of a sideways question. As, as an actual licensed therapist and someone who's in television, what do you think about the depictions of therapy on television and TV shows? You know, it's it's a difficult thing to do. It's it's a difficult thing to do because therapy is it's a pri it's a personal experience and it's a personal relationship between the client and the therapist. And it's not, you know, you know, cars crashing and explosions. It's not a visual thing. And so yeah. I think that a lot of times whenever, you know, production companies are trying to figure out a show for a therapist, it's hard to do because it's not something that's dramatic per se. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I see why people are doing it and the way they're doing it. There's, there's a, a, a therapy show on vice, I believe, where there is a man that's doing therapists with hip hop artists. And I mm. think it's fantastic. But again, it's not exciting, but it's necessary. It's real. It's real. Mm. Um, I think, unfortunately, the, uh, there's there's some personal exploitation that happens on, when people are doing their own personal therapy on air. Um, one of the shows that I worked on, I, I witnessed it and I thought it was crap because oh I could tell this is before I ever thought about it being a therapist. This was me being a producer. And a it producer, was, right, right. It's being a producer like, and I'm watching the show and I come in right. on the show. <laughs> I came in on a show in the fourth season of the show, so they'd already been doing this, where the talent on the show was doing her therapy on camera. And I thought, quite honestly, I thought it was bullshit because mm -hmm. there were so many things that they weren't talking about, but were obvious. And yeah. it felt exploitive to me. It's like you're dancing yeah. around something. And that's not how... Hold on. I Let me correct myself. I was about to say, that's not how true therapy works, but that's not true. That's not how therapy works with me. With you. But there, that, there are some therapists that do dance around issues. And sometimes it's a tactic that works for the client because the client isn't ready to go there and take the plunge. But sometimes the therapist is afraid to go down that road and take the plunge yeah. with the client. And yeah. so they can talk in circles for years. I yeah. can't stand that. I want you to feel better as fast as possible. Now, I'm right, not going to exactly. drag you to a conclusion that you're not ready yeah. for. And that's where right. you build a trust with your client and you understand where they are and you understand that's that right. they truly don't see this thing that I see as obvious, but I see it's obvious because of all my training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the, the skill is like in helping them, bringing them along to where they they uncover their own learning and their own process uh, at their own pace, right? Mm -hmm. So it's one thing, like you're saying, when a when a coach or a therapist uh, doesn't want to go there, and it's another thing completely whenever the client's not ready. Because mm -hmm. if you're making a therapeutic, if you're making an uh, 
in the moment professional decision, the client's not ready for this, and you know they're not ready because they won't go there when you ask them to, right? It's pretty straightforward. Um, I had a moment regard. with my own therapist where I had some repressed memories come up, and I'd been seeing him for probably five, six years at this point. And then all of a sudden I had these memories come up and I thought, whoa, what the what hell? What is that? <laughs> what is that? And I texted yeah. him like, I, and you know, I think my, my next session wasn't for a couple of weeks. And I was like, I have got to see you now. And, and I, <laughs> <laughs> and I explained to him what the memories were and I'm crying and I'm crying and I'm crying. And then it hit me. And I said to him, you knew. You knew this happened to me. You knew I went through this. I said, you knew, didn't you? And he goes, yeah, I did know. I said, why didn't you tell me something? Why didn't you say something? He goes, it's not my job to drag you into a place that you aren't, weren't already in. He's like, it's so not much my job. It's inappropriate. And I thought, yeah. wow. And I have since been that person. I've been on the other end of that with my own clients where I'm like, I yeah. know something happened. I yeah, it's know. beautiful. That's, but I you're love not that ready. very much. No, it's like in uh, the methods that I learned, I studied Hakomi for quite a while, and it's uh, very much around that. It's like supporting supporting the client's defense mechanisms so that they don't have to hold up the wall. And then whenever they decide energetically, somatically, it's okay to relax a little bit around whatever they're resisting, the resulting inf insight the input the the you know the information that becomes available to them is so much more powerful because it feels like it comes out of them mm -hmm. rather than well here's the here's the conclusion that we're driving towards and then when you get there it's kind of like somebody else's somebody else's thing right somebody else's behind the wheel um mm -hmm. i was speaking at an event a couple of months ago and i had a woman come up to me in between classes and she was telling me about her son he's in his early 30s and her father had molested her son and he mm. didn't reveal it until the grandfather had died and oh the son gosh. was in his early 20s and that's when he revealed it <laughs> And she I get said, so angry hearing stuff like that. I know. And he, he held it in for all, since he was a child, he held it in. And she said, and he won't go to therapy and he won't listen to anybody. And he's clearly depressed and he won't take medication. And I'm trying and my ex-husband's trying and we keep telling him and my ex-husband wants to force him. And I said, so your ex-husband loves your son. Yes, he does. You love your son. I said, yes. I said, but you guys are trying to force him to do something he doesn't want to do. That's what his grandfather did. Whoa. I said, Don't, Full stop. Yeah. <laughs> Full yeah. Stop. I said, stop. I said, you guys need to stop. I said, he want, he needs to heal himself. Yes, but he needs to do it in his own time when it's his idea. I said, he's been forced to do things his entire life. Stop. Mm -hmm. And she went away. Wow. She went away. And then hours later, she came back to me. She's like, I just got off the phone with my ex-husband. And he said, that makes so much sense. I never thought about it in that way. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, people have their own organic way of healing. And I think our job is to support that and not direct it, you know, not direct it, not in, not impose our way of thinking and being on someone else. There's a reason mm -hmm. why we hold things in. There's a reason why we shove things down as the coach, as yeah. the healer, as the therapist. We have to figure out what that is. And support them, support them coming to their conclusions in their own time, in their own way. Cause it's, that's how our confidence 
you know, rises when we make that realization. And he'd done that for me. My therapist did that for me. It took time, mm. but eventually, eventually I felt comfortable enough to be able to, for those memories to come up. It took mm. time though. Right. And so I've right. had those moments with my own clients. I had this one client in particular that said to me in the beginning of our therapeutic relationship, she says, I'm just letting you know, know now. She said, I'm just letting you know now. I'll eventually stop coming. She goes, that's what I've, I've started therapy with multiple people. And eventually I get to a point where I don't want to go any further. And I just stop. Don't take it personally. And I said, well, thank you for telling me that. I really appreciate that. <laughs> thank you. And we worked together for a couple of years. And then we had a moment. And she said, do you remember when I told you that I typically stop seeing people? I go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> she goes, we passed that point. I said, what do you mean we passed that point? She goes, we passed that point probably about six months ago. Mm. And I said, huh? Really? She's like, yeah. She goes, I'm, and I don't really know why. She goes, but I eventually just felt comfortable going past that moment that I usually felt uncomfortable. And I thought, wow. Well, I know why. <laughs> <laughs> because you're good at what you do and you help create authentic connection and support and all of this conditions that created the conditions for her to be able to go, yes. When before yeah. she'd said no. I hope. I hope. And 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 it's not to say that I haven't made mistakes. Well, I've of course. screwed up with clients. <laughs> I have screwed up with clients. I have. Um but you know, I, I feel like, you know, in my defense, it comes from an authentic place. It comes from a loving place where Well, you're again, trying to you're not perfect. You're gonna you're trying to work on your craft, right? And so it's like we make mistakes, even as the difficulty is that it's like if you're a carpenter, you're going to put boards in the wrong place sometime. But our our buildings are our people, right? And so sometimes we make mistakes, but we're trying to learn the best that we can. And the best you can do is to bring yourself as a heartful, skillful, conscious person into the into the relationship and do the best that you can. And for and, and that's. Good enough most of the time. It is. And I think also, too, it's there's the power of the apology. You know, apologizing mm -hmm. is such a powerful intervention when you apologize to someone. And, and I've apologized to clients before. And, yeah. and I think that if, you know, whenever someone apologizes to us, we have to understand how good that feels and how validating that moment is. And, and I say it to parents all the time. If you know you've screwed up with your kid, apologize. Cause imagine yeah. all the times you wish that your own parents had apologized to you. And I had a moment, I had a really amazing personal spiritual moment. And I came out of that moment going, I want to apologize to everybody I've ever met. And I had two teen clients that I'd been working with and I came out of that moment and in our next sessions, I apologized to both of these young ladies mm. and, and it was, and it was my own crap. My own mm. crap had me wanting them to function in life a certain way. Right. And I realized coming out of this moment, like, wait a minute, they have a right to lean into these moments and expect certain things from certain people. I couldn't do it when I was their age. I couldn't lean into my parents. I 
couldn't expect them to do anything. So I wanted them to be more adult than they needed to be, than they should have mm-hmm. been. And I didn't realize mm-hmm. it. And I, mm-hmm. and I remember with one in particular, I said, I'm really sorry. I was expecting you and wanting you and pushing you to function in a certain way that you weren't ready for. And guess what? You didn't need to be that. And I'm really sorry I did that to you. And she's like, it's okay, Melody. It's fine. I said, honey, it's not okay. But I'm Mm -hmm. grateful that you forgive me. But I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry that I was pushing you to be something that you didn't have to be. And it was my own crap. Yeah, well, it's it's just, you know, it's a great sign that you were able to come to that awareness and then refactor your work so that it's a better service to your people. And, you know, you probably, I don't know, but you're probably doing so much other good stuff in there that even though this was true as an approach and orientation for you, you're still helping them in a million different ways. Well, she said didn't even see it. <laughs> That's yeah. The funny thing is she didn't even see it. She didn't even no. see that what I was doing that was uncomfortable for her. She didn't see it at all. But mm-hmm. I, I felt it. Mm-hmm. And, well, and I needed to correct that. Well, and, and and like you said before, you're also modeling for them how to behave with other people whenever they see their own behavior going sideways. It's just kind of like, oh, oh, here's here's what it was like for me. And so it's a beautiful thing. Um, I wanted to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about your first, the title of your first book. I mean, I really took a pause and a breath after I read that. Could you could you restate the title of that book and what is it that moved you to create that? Absolutely. Uh, the book is called Mourning the Living, When the Loved One You've Lost is Still Here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, typically when we think of mourning or grieving, we associate that with someone who's died. And this book is different. This is about people who you are grieving, whether you realize it or not. And they're still walking, talking. They could be next door. They could be in the bed beside you. They could be across town. You know, these are people close to us. They're in our community. They're in our family circle. But we no longer have a relationship with them. And we're grieving that loss. It could be our parents. It could be our partners. It could be our own children. You know, there's an increase in family estrangement. Over the last several years, you know, people stopping their relationship with other people has risen. And for a variety of reasons, sometimes it's politics, sometimes it's substance use or abuse. Um, Sometimes it's LGBTQA issues that, you know, you don't see eye to eye. Mm -hmm. And so this book is about how do you handle that? Like, how do you how do you create a bridge if you feel respected enough? And if you have enough respect for the other person to try to create a bridge via boundaries, or do you sever the relationship altogether? So Mm. each book is a different relationship dynamic, fathers, mothers, partners, children. And it's, you know, do you adjust expectations and create boundaries or do you stop the relationship because you feel that you can't create a bridge. You can't come to an understanding. And it's hard. It, it's, a, it's a hard thing to do. And I think sometimes people don't even realize they're experiencing their grief of a relationship that isn't what they wanted it to be. And mm-hmm. one way to lean into it is how do you, when that person's name comes up or when you're sharing space with that person, how do you feel? Yeah. Do you feel tense? Do you feel anxious? Do you feel angry? Do you feel sad? 
That means there is something between the two of you that hasn't been communicated, which is why you're harboring these feelings that you mm -hmm. that don't work. And so the book is about all of these different relationship dynamics and what do you do? How do you handle it? So each chapter is split. The first half of the chapter are stories that were sent to me about people who've had to do this. They've had to either, oh, I apologize. They've had to either stop the relationship altogether each chapter is divided in half. The first part mm -hmm. of the chapter is stories that have come to me from people who've had to either sever the relationship or adjust their expectations and create boundaries in order to coexist. And the last half of the chapters are my interventions and interactions with my own clients having to do the same thing. So it's parents having to adjust their expectations of their children because of medical issues or mental health issues. It's, it's children, you know, whether they're teenagers or they're adults, you know, who've stopped talking to their parents because their parents, maybe they voted in a way that doesn't align with how they're living their lives. And, and it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's emotional Yeah, and it's Big, really huge. common. It's so common. When I it talked really to my is. publisher about it, the very first conversation that we had, my publisher started crying. Yeah, of course. Yeah, beautiful. And it's a common reaction. Most people gasp, just like you did. There's a gasp that happens like, whoa, because <laughs> we all have been there. We're in it right now where there's somebody that we know that we love that we don't talk to anymore. Yeah. Or yeah, we don't want to spend time with them anymore. We don't either. We don't talk to them or we don't want to talk to them, but we still feel mm -hmm. that we have to. Mm -hmm. Well, that's so powerful and on point. I, um, it's a, I think you, you know, you're, you're calling out a really big wound in the culture right now that I don't think is uh, respected or named enough. Um, nearly enough. And so I just felt like it was a, a very courageous and, and, um, uh, poignant focus and something to bring yourself into powerfully. It's a, a fabulous conversation to have. And so now, and now your next project, your next, uh, off the shelf, one of the many you've got working on the shelf. <laughs> and so what can we look forward to? This is, uh, this is like December 2023. What can we look forward uh, from you in 2024. Sure. So the next book is called My Bounce Back Plan. Um, so all of my books are very personal. They, 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 mm -hmm. they, there's, they, there's a germination that happens in my personal life that, that I get affirmation from, a, you know, people around me or conversations that I have that says, yes, this is something that's common. Go with it. So Mourning the Living is based on my relationship with my older sister who is a drug addict and how our relationship has evolved over the years because we grew up in an environment where our mother was a drug addict and I had I to sever ties with her. And I've since had to sever ties with my older sister because she's unhealthy. Um, mm. And I've had to grieve that relationship. My bounce back plan was the catalyst was a new client of mine who's an executive at a tech company. And she said, okay, so what are you going to do to me? And I said, excuse me? <laughs> what are you going to do? What am I going to do to you? She's like, what is this going to? She's very A, A type, uh, brain. Uh -huh. She's like, I need to know what this process is going to be. What are the steps? And I was like, what are the steps? And then I thought, oh, this is really interesting. And so I thought about all of the clients that I've worked with over the years. What are the steps that I do to help them heal? 
She needed mm-hmm. to heal from a relationship. She needed to heal from a breakup with a boyfriend and heal her relationship with her father and her mother. So that's where my healing plan it started. That was the first t- title. The first title was my healing plan. And then I changed mm-hmm. it to my bounce back plan. And basically mm-hmm. it's a workbook. So, you know, it circumvents the traditional therapeutic model where you can take this book and you don't even have to go to a therapist if you don't want mm-hmm. to. And, you know, mm-hmm. therapist therapy isn't accessible to all people. You know, it requires right. resources. And sometimes it requires transportation. You can take this workbook and this workbook will grow with you. There aren't chapters, there are steps. And the steps are, you know, how do you handle your physical state? You know, what are the things you can do to, you know, somatic exercises? Like, what can you do to help yourself feel better? It's not about, you know, pumping iron. It's about, you know, maybe you do jumping jacks because you're having a panic attack. And, you know, shaking out that anxiety is going to help you. Also, is that one of the exercises if you're having a Yes, it is. It is. And then there's a chapter about building your healing entourage. So you need to find people that are in healthy states, (laughs) healthy states that you want to be in. So you've got friend, you've got peers, you've got a mentor, you've got some, you've got people that are living the way that you want to live. And how do you find those people and bring them into your world so they can be resources for you so they can be support for you. And so I give you prompts on these are the things that you need to think about. Uh, Thought challenging is one of the steps. Like you need to Mm. shift how you are seeing this new change in your life, this new loss, this new trauma. And and how do you shift how you think about it so that you can live with it? And so that it, it, the, the workbook is a living, growing workbook. So as you evolve and progress in your healing, you keep going to the workbook and you keep adding in new interventions. You keep adding in new coping strategies so that when the next thing happens in life, because we know life is cyclical, there's always yeah. going to be something for you to heal from. It's always pick, something. There's always something. So you pick <laughs> up that book and you go, oh, the last, you know, whenever I, you know, lost my home or when I lost my job, these are the people I reached out to. These are the things yeah. I did to help me think about this differently. I'm going to do this, 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 and that. I tried these few things. Those things didn't work. Let me find other coping strategies, new coping strategies to try. So it's meant mm. to grow with you. As you evolve, the, the workbook evolves with you. Beautiful. That's so powerful. And, and uh, I love it that you're like trying to put it into a form where it's really accessible to people to work through these powerful stages that that's dynamic enough to adapt to you know, your life circumstances over and over again. That's a really powerful vision. How can people find you? If someone wants to connect with all the goodness that you're up to, where do they go? Sure. My website houses pretty much everything. Um, Melody LMFT. LMFT stands for Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. So you can find me on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, at MelodyLMFT.com. I'm also starting a TikTok account, and that's my there website. You go. Yeah, I'm getting in there with the kids. Um, my web address is MelodyLMFT.com. So you can buy my books there. You can buy online classes there. You can buy merchandise there as well. And see Beautiful. what I'm yeah, well, and I want to encourage people to check it out because, uh, you know, the Mindful Coach Association and um, which sponsors creates this podcast, basically, you know, where you have a lot of coaches and they, 
are going to be inspired by the work that you're doing. And, and, you know, your books and guidance are pretty, this is powerful stuff. And also just anybody else in the world who wants to connect to these resources and this deep learning, um, you know, I would encourage them to check it out. So thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure having you here. Um, looking forward to um, our next interaction because somehow intuitively I feel like that the, there might be more to come. Some We have to do this again, Brett. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this edition of the Mindful Coach Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this presentation. And if you did, follow us and leave us a review. If you're a coach or helping professional that values mindfulness in your work, browse over to mindfulcoachassociation.com and create a free community profile describing your services so the world can find you. And you'll be invited to exclusive community meetings where you can meet your colleague. I'm your host, Brett Hill, founder of the Mindful Coach Association, coach and coach trainer teaching the Mindful Coach Method. You can find out more about me at themindfulcoach.com. Until next time, stay present.